It's interesting because on the work brand, on the industrial side, they were innovating with new technologies, new materials, and new machines. Our version of innovation on the heritage side was just trying to recreate what they did back 40, 50 years ago. And that was a challenge. You know, we don't have the same machines, different operators, obviously, different layout of the factory. So our goal, our, our objective was to recreate that look and feel in today's modern world. Shoecast! Welcome all enthusiasts of vertically integrated footwear manufacturing to the Stitchdown Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things we love about it. I'm Ben from Stitchdown.com. Ticho is present and sporting a beard that would stop a moose in its tracks from pure instinctual fear. And today, we're beyond excited to chat with Mike Larson, the Global Product Design and Development Manager for Red Wing Heritage, which essentially means Mike and his team dream up stuff and then put it through about a million steps and then it becomes like a real boot. Uh, So we are going to get very nerdy about development today amongst all other things Red Wing Heritage, which would be an absolute blast. Before we get Mike out here, we just need to give a tender shout out to our sponsor this week, Grant Stone, a person I would disown, someone who doesn't like Grant Stone. I think that that one might be better than some of the other intentionally bad Grant Stone. Real slogans, uh, sign up for their newsletter to stay updated on their Shell Cordovan pre-orders and plenty more at grantstoneshoes.com. Also, if you're enjoying the shoecast, the best way to support it is to become a member of the Stitchdown Premium Community and the Stitchdown Discord, where you'll have your brain irreparably warped for the better. Definitely for the better. By hanging out with over a thousand fellow obsessives who know a frightening amount about shoes, boots, leather, construction, and more. Your $5 a month or $50 a year, a.k.a. $0.14 cents a day, which can buy literally only this membership in the year 2023. We looked it up. Goes oh so far to support this podcast and all Stitchdown operations. More info on stitchdown.com. Can't wait to see you in the Discord. All right, gents, let's do this. Mike Larson of Red Wing Heritage, welcome to the Shoecast. How's everything going? And what, may I ask, are you wearing on your feet today? Hi, Ben. Hi, Tijo. I'm doing great. Winter is mostly over, I hope. We are uh, excited for the spring season coming up. Today, I'm, um, well, to be honest, probably you guys know this too, but the hardest decision I make every day in the morning is what am I going to wear today? So I got a pretty big closet of, of Red Wings and other things, but this week I've been wearing, uh, sporting a pair of vintage supersetters from the late 70s, early 80s. So it's a boot I found at a thrift store. It's about 40 years old. The Supersetter is a triple eight, and it's made from crimp leather from Norway, and it's made with Norwegian welt construction. And it happens to fit my foot size, which is very unique. I'm a very long, narrow foot. And so, ironically, a lot of the boots I'm developing, um, I can never wear because they're not my size. So whenever I do find a pair of boots that fit me, I wear them all the time. Nice. This thing sounds sweet. What's the Red Wing number on them? Uh, 888. 888's um, the... Tag number, okay. Yeah, that's what it is. Triple eight. It's an awesome boot. What is Norwegian crimp leather? What is that? Yeah, so crimp is Norwegian for shrink. It's actually leather that's naturally shrunk, and it's kind of an old-fashioned way of waterproofing a leather or making it water-resistant because the pores just shrinks. So if you looked at them, this is very natural, pebbled grain-looking boot. has a nice squeak to it when you walk around. And then it has Norwegian welted... um, construction so it's good you welted but it's also norwegian welted as well so 
It's very uh, durable boot for this type of weather that we're in right now. Everybody's just saving eBay alerts for Red Wing 888 <laughs> at the moment, including myself. All right, so we'll get to the part where you're currently developing those to bring them back in a little bit. What's the whole collection look like? Yeah, I mean, the last few years has been challenging. We've gone through some interesting times with COVID and shutdowns and navigating all that. We've also went through a, a cyber incident. We were hacked, so that set us back as well. Thankfully, we're a very resilient company. You know, we've been around since 1905. We've gone through world wars and depressions, and we pulled through. You know, last year we had, um, we celebrated the 150th anniversary of our tannery, SB Foot Tanning Company. So it's an incredible milestone. Obviously, leather is the main ingredient of footwear, and um, we're really fortunate to have our tannery right here in Red Wing, Minnesota, just a few miles from our factory. We also have a new CEO on board, Allison Gettings. She's a fourth-generation CEO of the family. A lot going on, man. What happened with the hack? There, there, people had a lot of questions, right? And everybody was like, well, I wish this hadn't happened. Nobody's fault, but like, how was it resolved? Normally, hackers like to target the medical industry because there's a lot of privacy information there and the, you know, the hospitals or whatever, they just pay up and clear themselves. So during the pandemic, the hackers have a sense of ethics and they decided that, you know what, probably now is not the best time to be hacking the hospital system. So they chose other industries to go after. So footwear was one of them and they chose us on Halloween one year. <laughs> We got the call that we're being hacked, and we shut everything down and basically rebuilt from scratch. Oh, it's tough. I remember it was like, oh, man, you can't buy stuff on the site. People are like, where, where else has Red Wings right now? And, you know, those stocks vanished pretty quickly. Weird moment. Thankfully, I mean, we had a lot of systems in place, but there were some things that were still old school manual, especially in our manufacturing setting. We still had old manual cutting dies. Had we been all in the auto cutting, we would have been shut down completely. You know, as soon as we had the hack, we pulled out the manual cutting dies and just started cutting shoes by hand and uh, did what it take to get, you know, the shoes out the door. I, I love that, right? Red Wing, it's a big company. Technology can be very helpful in manufacturing these products, but the muscle's still there and and the things that you need to just be like, I don't know, we, we can still do this. It can be an analog process. Yeah, it brought people together in, in so many different ways and cross-functionally within the company. And uh, like I said, experiences like these just show our resilience and brings us closer together as a, as a community. Mike, you've been at Red Wing developing Heritage product for 13 years, I'm pretty sure, which means you came on a couple years after the Red Wing Heritage line even became an official thing. How'd you get your start there coming from completely outside footwear? I mean, what's that ride been like almost a decade and a half? Yeah, it's been quite the ride for sure. I was incredibly lucky to come into the company when there were still a lot of old shoe dogs around. The person who hired me, Dave Hill, he worked at the tannery for 30 years, and then he worked at the shoe company for an additional 10. I got to learn a lot from him. He was incredibly helpful in making sure I was connected to the right people and learning the right things. Everybody else around me were in the industry for 40 plus years as well. You know, our pattern engineers, we had four pattern engineers, all who had worked 30, 40 plus years. I was very young, didn't know a single thing about footwear. You just, you know, listened and learned and absorbed and learned on the job. Really incredible too, you know, to have our tannery right down the road and just really understand the connection between tanning leather and then making footwear, you know, seeing what works, what doesn't work. 
having the ability to travel, um, going to Japan, understanding the consumer in the market. Our designer that we work with, Aki Iwasaki, he's from Japan. He knows everything about Red Wing Shoe Company. We uh, call him the archaeologist because he's literally digging in the archives, trying to find old catalogs, old blueprints. He goes out to the shops and, and finds vintage boots, and we sit there and dissect them and understand what techniques we were using back then, what patterns, and it's been really an incredible journey to build the line and to get where we're at today. All right, so we knew we were going to get to Aki at some point, and now we're here. I guess maybe the best place to start is the beginning, right? A little before you, you came on, but not that much. Somebody over there said... You know, we make work boots and we, we make mock toes, certainly, and we've made some versions of these boots in the past. What if we put this focus on it, address this specific market? Okay, you know, and there's a lot of different ways that could have happened, and it really seems like the way that you just described what Aki's doing, I mean, even his nickname alone, that he kind of chose the hard way, which is also the cool way. What do you know about the beginnings of that, the genesis of what today is, you know, for people listening to this Red Wing heritage being synonymous with Red Wing. Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess in North America, we're known as a safety industrial footwear company. That is the big engine of our company, the bread and butter of our company. And so talk to the average person on the street, they probably know Red Wing as a safety boot company. It's not that way overseas in Europe and Japan. They are shocked oftentimes to learn that we have um, safety footwear and they view us as a, as a heritage lifestyle brand. But in Japan, you know, the Americana trend really took off and, um, you know, all things Americana, people obsessed about it. And it was, it was great to see. And, you know, we saw that with denim. We saw that with a lot of things. And footwear obviously um, followed that. So we had a team, an office startup in, in Japan, Tokyo. Aki was one of the first people on, brought on board and he did a phenomenal job just exploring and investigating and understanding the history of Red Wing Shoe Company. And our product was all there. It's in the archive. He didn't have to invent anything or create anything new. It was just had to, to discover it, to uncover it. You still have the same last, the same patterns. Everything was all there. That was kind of the, the start of the brand and becoming its own entity division within the company. From there, you know, it took off. You know, people look at Japan for trends and don't know all the details of the story. But um, I think it was Todd Snyder at uh, J. Crew, who was at that time the, the merchandiser there. He was seeing people wearing Red Wings in Japan and, and asked uh, Mickey Drexler, I think at the time, he's like, hey, we should bring Red Wing into, uh, into our assortment. I think Mickey said no to him, and, uh, but he persisted and got the boots in the line. And next thing we knew, our work boot factory here in Red Wing was all of a sudden trying to scramble to get you know, thousands of pairs made for the J. Crew catalog that year. Do you know what year that was? I think it was 2007. They did a great job of highlighting the boot in the catalog. And, you know, you can... Just about imagine people at Red Wing Shoe Company, you know, kind of startled by the fact that all of a sudden we're not uh, promoting a safety boat, and but now it's you know on the in this fashion catalog. So a lot of the early years of the brand was actually trying to sell the the concept to people within our own organization. Even my early part of the year was you know that same thing it was like we have a consumer out there who knows us, who loves us. We have a product that we can make and sell. People would will buy it and and so a lot of that um those early years those formative years of the brand were that was the what we were doing so what was being made directly before then in terms of boots that it seems like red wing has been making 
forever, nonstop, 875 Mokto, you know, all that. Like, did those products actually not exist? At that point, I was out there, you know, wearing sneakers. I remember, I think it was probably around that same time, because I used to work for a company that was, it was a media company, and we didn't focus on anything fashion. It was like just completely different category, but we purchased a kind of a retailer, like an early online retailer. And some of those guys, I remember, started rocking these Red Wings. And one of them was from Chicago. And I was like, I guess that's what you got to wear to make it through a Chicago winter. And at that point, you know, like a Red Wing Mokto was this big, thick, high sidewalled, stacked atop a wedge. Yeah, and I'm trying to get like Gore-Tex Asics or something to like make it through winter. You know, very different version of myself. But it's probably around the same time. Do you know what was being made pre-Red Wing Heritage Inception? Or did it all have to be recreated? No, a lot of the products actually had been in the line continuously since then. And the consumer just sort of expanded from being just your core work guy to more of a lifestyle application. That was part of the, the learning curve, if you will, for the company, especially with our quality team, is making them understand that, um, you know, we have another consumer who is using this product, you know, different wear occasion, different environment, and maybe they have different expectations for quality. And so that was basically just taking a product that's always been there and making sure that we're servicing the customer in the proper way. Another milestone we celebrated last year in 2022 was the 875. It had its 70th birthday. So it's been in the line continuously for 70 years since 1952. It was interesting. I was actually, Aki and I were just doing some research and over the course of 70 years, we've done over 50 different colorways on that model. So it's had a long life and uh, it continues to live on. It's our icon. You know, nothing on that product has changed in the last 50 years. You know, there might be little tweaks here and there with, with the outsole or things like that. But, you know, it's the same pattern, same veg tan insole, same construction. Um, and it's really cool. It's kind of like a living fossil. You know, it's I always like, you know, when people put that boot on, you become a member of the club and you you can kind of just picture everybody over the course of the last 70 years who has worn that boot, whether it's a construction worker, somebody who's out hunting. My grandpa, he died when my mom was, was young, 16, so I never met him, um, but he wore Red Wings on the farm. And my mom, every time she sees me wearing a pair of Red Wings, the Iron Rangers, I guess, uh, my grandpa had a pair of those a type of those boots back then. So every time my mom sees me wearing that boot, she's like, oh, you're just like your grandpa. So it's kind of cool because I've never met my grandpa, but I can feel a part of him in a way, you know, when I wear that boot. There's obviously things you brought back from the archives that we hadn't made for many, many years. So that was the learning curve that the factory had to go through. That's where, you know, Aki would dissect the shoe and understand, you know, what machine they were using and, you know, the, the needle tension, SPI. It's interesting because on the work brand, on the industrial side, they were innovating with new technologies, new materials, and new machines. Our version of innovation on the heritage side was just trying to recreate what they did back 40, 50 years ago in today's modern world. And that was a challenge. You know, we don't have the same machines, different operators, obviously, different layout of the factory. We have a, a lean factory operation today. Whereas back in the old school factory, you know, they had, they just did things differently. So our goal, our, our objective was to recreate that look and feel in today's modern world. You know, the factory did a great job stepping up and trying to understand um, what we were trying to do. And, you know, the footwear industry is a balance between art and science and business, right? So you have to, at the end of the day, you know, make a profit and all those 
things that come along with running a shoe business. So we had to find that, we call it the golden triangle, cost, quality, delivery. You know, where, where do we want to be in that formula? How did he figure out like the thread tension? Was that like old documents or did he like reverse engineer that somehow? Yeah, a combination of a lot of different things. Um, you can learn a lot from dissecting a shoe. It's kind of like an autopsy, if you will. You can figure out, you know, the tension type of thread used, polyester versus nylon versus cotton threads or a blend. And then, um, you know, just going to the repair shops and um, looking at their machines and what they were doing. Some of these repair shops out there have a lot of vintage machinery that um, you can't find in the market today. So, and then, you know, it turns out we had a lot of machines sitting in various parts of Red Wing that were collecting dust and just brought those back, dusted them off and um, got them working again. And um, so, yeah, it's a lot of hard work and uh, trying to, to blend our heritage product in with the, the mass produced uh, factory product, you know, it was a challenge, um, but uh, we got it to work and it overall made everybody better shoemakers, right? Because it made sure our quality was top notch, exposed all the people working in the factory to a broad range of footwear, not just, you know, safety toe boots, but, um, you know, high end shoes going to Japan to a very discerning consumer. So there was a lot of frustration and, and headaches and that went along with it, but overall it made us a better, a better factory. Yeah. I mean, it seems like for highly successful safety boot company, that's like got its script down a terrible business decision to turn everything upside down to make a thousand boots for J crew, you know, obviously it's a fun ride and something that we're all thrilled about, but what was the pitch? Like, how did that pitch even exist? How did it get listened to? I don't know the right person at the right time. And just things kind of went together. I mean, we're kind of viewed sometimes as the, you know, people at the little kids table, you know, and we know our place within the, in the structure. Kids table is more fun. Yeah. Right. So that's the benefit of the company is that because we have a work brand, we have the capital to invest in equipment and things that can, can help the heritage brand. The heritage brand in a way kind of casts a halo of brand recognition, you know, to a broader audience. And so there's this mutual relationship that's, that's beneficial to us all. So what is that mix look like now versus maybe five years ago and 10 years ago or around when you started in terms of work versus heritage? You know, we live in a different era now post-COVID. You know, when I started the the heritage brand balloon to about 260 styles that we had, you know, that were active. Um, they weren't necessarily running them every day, but there was about 260 different styles Um there were SMUs, there were inline product for Japan, Europe, North America. You know, during COVID, we had to really, it was, you know, tough decisions. We had to bring it down to a very tight core collection, you know, very curated, focusing in our iconic styles, Mokto, Iron Ranger, and our iconic leathers. Quite honestly, the brand was on life support um, during those times. But that was good. I mean, it, it helped us get through those times. We were very lean and efficient. I think we got down to only 12 styles that we were making. That's crazy drop, man. Yeah, 260 to 12. Interestingly, I think our business didn't lose a beat in terms of pairs sold. I mean, that was we did more with less. Our goal going forward is to bring those styles back and you know bring some of those other peripheral products that um, kind of filled out our line, bring those back and um, get to a point where we have a, 
a collection that's big enough and stable enough that uh, works. Of the 248 styles they had to put on the shelf, what, what was the one that people missed the most, do you think? Uh, that's a good question. You know, that varies regionally. Japan loves the engineer boot. That wasn't a big thing in North America. Lyman boot's been really big overseas as well. Like I said, it was tough decisions. But, you know, the mock is obviously our icon. We wanted to make sure that we... Um, didn't back down from that. Iron Ranger, of course, is is up there. And then our, our stitch down category too, which was a new product category um, that we introduced 2016, I think it was. And that's been in our top 10 now for, for quite a while. Redmond makes a great, great lace to toe boot, but you, like, you've never been able to get them here. I almost bought a pair on my honeymoon. My wife is like, we've been here for one day. <laughs> We're here for a while <laughs> in Tokyo. Don't get these. And then like, just never made it back to the ABC Mart or wherever they were. It's a big team that, that we're a part of. You know, we have a group of analysts, merchants, designers, developers, and again, it's the art and science and business of footwear. So you can come up with a cool product, but you got to have numbers to support it. So we work as a team. So there's a lot of cool ideas that we have. Tons of prototypes sitting around my office that are really cool boots. People come and see it and like, oh man, you should launch that. But you know, you have to look at it from a business aspect too. You have to have the pairs to support it, um, the distribution, all that. So amidst all this, even with the you know the kind of overall line shrinkage development, whether it ends up on shelves or not, is still occurring. Ripping, like where would you place it? Yeah, it's um, definitely happening. Our go-to-market process it's a two-year calendar we're always two years out so we just had kickoff for fall 25 yeah we're juggling four seasons at once you know spring summer season fall winter season goes through a very regimented process line start and then we have our sign-offs by various levels of leadership and then writing the formal concept brief the business case and that gets handed off to my team the design development team and we start sketching then we get the green light. Then we're off to patterning and starting to make the shoe come together and uh, go through you know, several prototype iterations. We're very lucky, again, you know, to be living and working in Red Wing and having the factory and the tannery just in our backyard to buzz out there and take a look at a machine or a process or see how th- something comes together. And it's really in the moment, hands-on, cross-functional development. Once you get the green light and the prototype, we're uh, off to doing testing. We test things to to death we do lab testing on all of our individual components we have our own lab here in town as well so you know raw material vendors give us lab data from their their labs and we we test it here as well then we put the final boot out in the field we do initial fit testing just on three or four people here in the office if that passes then we do a 40-hour test because with boots no two feet are alike and no conditions are alike. So sometimes you can get a boot that fits really well right away when you put it on, but an issue pops up after you start wearing it for a little bit or vice versa. You know, something can fit a little odd to begin with. And then, you know, a couple hours later, it breaks in and it's not an issue. So we do our 40-hour wear tests with a larger sampling of people. And then uh, then we do an extended wear test where we do a month, two months, three months out in the field different regions, different environments across the country and the world. We send some boots to Japan for testing as well, and it's a big process. Then we go through the commercialization phase. You know, it'd be nice if we were just developing one boot, one size, but we got all different sizes and widths to think about. So sometimes there's issues that pop up on an extreme size that don't show up on the core sizes that we develop with. So then it's back to square one, 
repatterning the size nine. At the end of the day, when everybody says, yep, everything looks good, all sizes check out, then we're um, ready for production. That's a big sigh of relief when we get to that point. It's wild, man. And this is for everything. Let's say that you have a Moxo boot, you know, or an Iron Ranger, like the pattern is understood and a lot of the basics have been conquered, right, over the years. And you want to put on a different leather from your own tannery or a different color leather. Did you go through all of that for each of those variants? We can accelerate a few things, but that was one of my lessons I learned pretty quick early on in my career is that just because it's a leather swab doesn't mean it's slam dunk. You know, A75 is an example. You know, we've done 50 colorways over the course of 70 years on that. But, you know, the 875 in the factory setting, you're making them on a daily basis. And all of a sudden you have a new leather that comes in. Maybe it's a different oil content. It totally throws off your groove. It could throw off your stitching tension. It can throw off a lot of different things. Yeah, that was like, I think my second or third project, I think we were working on something for J. Crew, and we swapped the leather and thinking it would be good. And uh, had the oil content, the upper leather was bleeding onto the lining leather and it caused a lot of issues. And Sometimes the most successful project is one where it's brand new from scratch. There's no previous history on it. It's a new last, new pattern, new outsole, new materials. It's so new that it's not disrupting anything else that's going through the factory. Who do you have doing the wear testing? Do you have just like a crew of professional shoe wearers? And if so, where can I send my application uh, for that job? We have a pretty robust database. Um, Well, we did prior to cyber. (laughs) We've had... Had to rebuild a lot of that, but... Um, Opportunity knocks, Ticho. <laughs> yeah. Size 9. Anybody who's size 9, you're you're very lucky. That's the benefit, too, of working with the other brands. You know, the work brand, the hunt brand, is that um, we have testers in all different parts of the country, different regions, different conditions, environments. And so if we're developing a boot that requires those conditions, we can send them out to them and... They can wear them in that environment. So some of these people have been testing us for a long time, um, but feet do change over time too. So we got to make sure that you know they're still a size nine after many years. And um, uh, we have a three in-house fit test coordinators that are out are constantly in touch with all these people and sending them boots. And we have a survey that goes out. They do a really good job of asking the questions. And and that's the thing too is if we're testing a certain fit or a certain pattern they're trained in you know what questions to ask you're not leading the tester to a certain conclusion you know want to make sure we get the actual honest information from them the neat part too is to to get the boots back from the tester we put them in a big room line them up on the table we look at how they look after three months and uh it's pretty interesting you know some some shoes come back looking great some people wear them to death and so it's kind of cool to see that broad spectrum it's also cool, too, uh, at the factory, we have our own repair shop, in-house repair shop, and I always like to go swing by there and take a look and see what boots are looking like coming back from the field, and uh, it's like looking at my babies, you know, as as they're growing up and out in the field, and it's like, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, the boots come back, and, you know, it's, it's great feedback for us in development because you can see what's working, what's not working, and it's a great feedback loop. Suburban New Jersey is uh, a very unique environment. I go to a lot of food stores. I get bagels. I get pizza. Dropping pizza on boots, like that's something that needs to be tested, I feel like, specifically. so Yeah, there's probably an ASTM standard that needs to be written for that. <laughs> TJ, this is shameful behavior, and <laughs> we're going to cut off all of it temporarily. 
Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Mike Larson of Red Wing Heritage, who will never sign up to as a boot tester. So I was talking with Wyatt from Grant Stone the other day, and I says to Wyatt, I says, what's the best thing about the Grant Stone newsletter? And Wyatt says to me, he says, well, we don't like to bother people very much, so we really don't send all that many, which is about as good a pitch for a newsletter as I've ever heard. You know, I have like an email where I send all the newsletters, and uh, I never delete it, right? I think it's got, I'll give you the exact number right now. <laughs> you have a separate newsletter email. 97,328 <laughs> emails. <laughs> it can be relentless. I got a newsletter. This was the pinnacle of targeted marketing. Look, here's your kid enjoying the basketball game that we're putting on. Don't you want to come to another one? And I was like, I kind of do. Look at how happy he is. <laughs> Wait, how'd they get a picture of your kid? They just took a picture. It was a basketball game, and they just took a picture of him, and they used it as the newsletter. You seem to be looking at this positively, so we're going to roll with that. It might be super creepy. I'm not sure. All right, we'll figure that out later. Let me tell you who's not. Grant Stone, because they're treating their audience correctly. So what is in these rarefied newsletters that they send? Well, it's by far the best way to stay alerted on their limited Horween Shell Cordovan pre-orders, and there are a bunch coming up soon and throughout the year. Edward Boot, Brass Boot, Diesel Boot, Traveler Penny Loafer, maybe some Long Wings in there, Ruby Red Garnet Shell, the wonderfully character-rich Brown Maduro Shell, and of course, the delicious Honey Glazed a.k.a. natural, with a little special stuff on it, Shell Cordovan. All somehow still $695, something that Grant Stone's committing to for the foreseeable future, which is laudable. And, and, let's play this newsletter thing out even further and pretend you despise general newsletters, even wonderfully infrequent ones. You can also sign up for individual product back-in-stock newsletters on Grant Stone's Shell Cordovan models that they've had in the past, or any other style. So that is pretty good, too, I'd say. Spring, summer, I'm thinking maybe do a shell loafer this year. So I'm sold on that. Send me that newsletter right now. Grant Stone. Tagline. They really, truly don't want to spam you. Find out just how committed they are to that at grantstoneshoes.com. And now, back to the shoe cast. All right, we're back with Mike Larson of Red Wing Heritage. Let's back it up to before the break when you were telling us about the lab testing. What's going on in this lab? What kind of lab? What kind of testing? Again, we're um, a safety footwear company, so the safety of our consumers the top priority. You know, we have steel toe boots, safety that needs to be tested. There's the ASTM standard, the EN standard for Europe, the CSA standard for Canada. Basically, it's a published list of all the testing requirements that a safety footwear needs to go, needs to pass. On the work brand, every boot you make, every style number has to pass that standard, whatever it's rated for, whether it's EH or slip or steel toe. So actually, the lab, it's in our tannery facility and every one of our mills of leather also gets tested if it's a waterproof leather, for example. We do a lot of leather for the military, so um has very rigorous standards. At the tannery, we test all of our raw materials that go into that, the raw hides, all the dyes, formulas. And on the footwear side, like I said, every component gets tested. Yeah, there's a lot of machines flexing and pulling things and burning things. It's pretty cool to go visit and see what's going on there. We have a garment division as well. They also have their own safety standards, but you know nothing really touches touches the earth like a boot, right? Every condition, ice, snow, 
dirt, oil. We got to make sure people are on their feet and uh, getting their jobs done. Yeah, you, you mentioned the garments. I'm looking uh, looking behind you on the video feed, and there looks like a very colorful array of jumpsuits of some kind that actually look pretty appealing to me. Uh, <laughs> I would rock some of those. You yeah. seem to be in the garment division. Currently. Yeah, let's. Uh, where where are you right now? What is all the stuff behind you? Yeah, well, Ben said to go find a nice closet to record in, so <laughs> you took it seriously. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so at Red Wing, you know, the safety footwear is our, our big part of the company, the big slice of the pie. We also have a hunting division, a trail hiking division, our Vasque brand. And then we also have a garment division, or PPE, personal protection equipment. So we, especially in international vision, Norway, in the Middle East, we outfit workers head to toe. So um, we started as a footwear company, but as a worker, you wear more than boots. You got to wear the whole garment. So we um, do uh, helmets eyeglasses, gloves, and the full garment. So we have hubs in Norway and Scotland where um, a new worker you know, signs up for an oil company. Within hours, they get outfitted with a, a kit that's personalized to them. Their own, their, obviously, their footwear size, their garment size, patches on the suit for the company they're working for and their name on it, and they get this kit. And within hours, they're flowing up by helicopter out to the oil rig, and they're on the job. We offer that full, that full service. And we've been doing it for a while too. It's I don't know the exact year we started, but it's been decades. So neat part of our company, and it makes for a great uh, recording studio. How many people work for Red Wing? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, uh, let's see. I think it's around two thousand. You know, a little north of two thousand. Yeah, we have factory, tannery, corporate office, retail stores, and we have offices overseas: Norway, Scotland, Dubai, Tokyo. It's a small but mighty company. We're unique in that we're not a publicly traded company, so we're within the family, and um, a lot of um, great stories of people who have, you know, their moms or dads have worked here. Um, the family has worked in the company, and it's really cool to swing by and talk to someone who's been here 30 years and hear the stories of how the company's evolved. Their whole family's been a part of it. I mean, yeah, and you mentioned the old shoe dogs and a whole bunch of them that were there when you started, which is I don't know, maybe or maybe not implying that there are, are fewer old shoe dogs this year and kind of like generational lineage type stuff, but it is still a part of it. Yeah, I, there's a rich history here, obviously, in, in Red Wing. Still a lot of retirees around, you know, I run into every day and they always ask how things going at the shoe. And yeah, but, you know, it, it is a new era, you know, younger generation of workers tend to, you know, move around to job to job. It's very rare now to have somebody start and then continue to work. Like I said, when I started 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I was one of the younger people they hired, and I had no background in shoe and, and footwear. I wasn't raised in the community, so I was <laughs> complete newbie to the company. You know, I had to learn from scratch. Looking to people who've been around, who've been working for a long time, I learned a lot. Now it's kind of the baton is handed off, and new people coming in, and you know, it's uh, a, a new generation. Yeah, I don't think it's just a Red Wing, right? I feel like there's a generation moving towards retirement or like or never retiring, and then you know just not being there one day, which is pretty damn noble, if you ask me. You know, across the industry, and the idea that there's forty or fifty years of generational knowledge inside a single individual is just becoming a you know a fainter reality. I don't know. Maybe that's easier to weather. At a place like Red Wing, where 
you know, there are 2000 people doing various jobs, but at smaller brands and the ones that we love, there's like one person who knows how to, and some sort of fail safe, maybe, but like one person who really knows how to cut that leather and like not always that much of a plan for what happens after. It's terrifying, man. It really is. When I first started, like I said, there was three or four pattern engineers that were had 30, 40 plus years of experience. And they all retired basically around the same time. And that's a critical position in footwear is the pattern engineer, the pattern maker. So, um, you know, we quickly realized that, oh, okay, we have to make sure that we have no gaps like this, you know. Um, so they, they quickly understood that there has to be a knowledge transfer that happens. And so I think we've done a great job of, of doing that in key areas. And, you know, when somebody retires from, from the shoe, oftentimes they're still in the community and they're more than willing to help when we need to. And, you know, you mentioned cutting. Like we had uh, one of our lead cutters who retired recently and he more than happy to come back in and, and help us out when we need to and train train new people when they come in. So people are very passionate about Red Wing, the brand, and its legacy. It speaks volumes for us as a as a company and as a brand. So do people who work there, you refer to it just as the shoe? Yep, that's the shoe in town. Yeah, it's kind of a, a badge <laughs> of honor, you know? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Um, you, you use it? Can you use it again in like a sentence or two? Yeah. How are things going at the shoe? What's the shoe today? Oh, that's fucking tight. Yeah. Yeah. The other, yeah. There's a lot of cool sayings. You you know, you have to, you have to earn your wings. That's another one that you hear quite a bit too. Oh, uh, okay. How do you do that? Well, as a consumer, you earn your wings by making your feet bloody by trying to break your boots in. I uh, do. My original Iron Rangers, my original Iron Rangers were like seriously bloody ankles for like, months and then one day they were perfect i was like i did it i did it. i fucking beat them my second pair you know different leather was like it just worked i don't know maybe the ankles were just kind of done there's no blood left so that the enemy of manufacturing is variation right as a as a manufacturer you want to eliminate all the variation you possibly can but with footwear that's just almost impossible right i mean you're starting out with a with a hide of leather and no two sides of leather are alike right so just the variation in that alone is you know a lot then from there you know there's tons more variation within the process most of our operations require immense hand-eye coordination and all that requires training right so it all boils down to the worker right it's the it's the person behind the machine that makes the difference in quality and you can automate as much as much as you can and people have tried you know we've had a lot of People coming into the company from other manufacturing sectors, you know, medical device, aerospace, and have tried to bring some of those techniques into the footwear manufacturing setting. And, you know, there's, you just can't, you know, some things you just, you just cannot automate. And, you know, that burns a lot of engineers out, right? It's like, oh man, here's, here we are working on this problem. And, uh, you know, it comes down to the art and craft of shoemaking. So I love that. Do you have any examples of that where the engineers are like, okay, here we are, ready to solve everything down at the shoe, and the, sh- the shoe says no, you know? The shoe's like, uh, no, this is, it's, it's too personal. Like, that, that's the magic and the beauty behind it all, right? And the idea, too, that, you know, there are handmade products. There are incredibly handmade, literally, I mean, I was wearing this pair of shoes today that they don't even use a sewing machine for anything. It's 100% made by hand. They're really cool. It kind of feels like it. But to discount Goodyear welted products that are made using machines, 
operated by a person that none of us, including probably Mike, would be able to run with any level of efficiency, probably after like six months of doing it. That always gets me a little bit, right? Like, oh, it's not handmade. It's like uh, a lot lot of hands were responsible for making that shoe look as good and as wearable as you thought. So we know that, but like, do you have anything that they ran into and they're like, oh, we're stumped. We can't make this better and we're incredibly frustrated and like it's shoe magic that's stopping them from doing it. You know, there comes a point in time when an engineer comes in and, and they, they understand and respect and appreciate the craft of the of the shoe. That's a, a beautiful moment, you know, in a career of an engineer is that everything you learn in engineering school is basically counterintuitive to footwear. <laughs> so I, I remember in my journey too, you know, I worked for a little bit in the software industry. I worked in high school working for a CNC shop that did medical instruments. And so that was my background. My mom and dad own a photography studio. I definitely appreciate the art and craft and the science of photography. And so that obviously translates to footwear too, is that, you know, there's two types of manufacturing. There's the like the widget manufacturing and then there's the craft manufacturing. And so we we fall into the craft manufacturing sector. And so it's part of my journey of learning footwear. You know, a few years in I, I had the opportunity to to study with a bespoke shoemaker, Amara. Clark Weber, she has a studio up in St. Paul. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I uh, had this awesome experience working with her and making a pair of boots. And, you know, there again, like I mentioned earlier, I have this very unique foot shape, right? Like we all do. <laughs> I'm very narrow and, and long, so I'll, none of the boots actually fit, that I was working on fit me. So it was really cool to finally step into a pair of boots that fit me like to a T. And it's like indescribable, right, when you finally wear a boot that fits you. And so I was learning all these old school manual operations like skiving leather by hand and all these things. And um, so I go back to the factory and, and tell the guys like, hey, I just learned how to skive by hand, you know. And, you know, we have a machine that does that in the factory setting. But, you know, until you hold the knife in your hand and push that knife through the leather, you really don't have an understanding of what's happening when that machine is doing its job. And so, I mean, that that's... That's the beauty, I think, of, of stepping back and, and putting your work in context and understanding the tradition of shoemaking and how we got from bench made to you know, where we're at today. Um, so that's, a, that's definitely a journey. Obviously, if you make things by hand, boots cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, there's, no, there's no limit, right? So our job in the manufacturing setting is to try to find the balance, right? To get a, a well-made shoe, highest quality possible, best leather, and, and get it to a price point where, you know, people can buy it and feel good about it. And so I think that's where Red Wing checks all the boxes. We have a factory, a well-oiled machine that um, has been making boots for 117, 16 years now. They've got that down you know, to a science. And then, then the Heritage brand comes around and throws a monkey wrench in there and <laughs> throws a new leather at them. And we have to learn how to tackle this problem. What boots did you make with Amara? Yeah, I made a pair of chukkas and I used uh, some horse leather. You know, I want to do something that we don't normally do at our factory. So, yeah, it was an incredible experience. And then then from there, I studied last making. Dominic Casey, you know, John Lobb, um, got to be with him for a week and we made a pair of lasts. And uh, actually, I did this really interesting experiment. So after I was done, I was sitting here with a pair of bespoke bench-made shoes I had the pattern, I had the last. I'm like, what would happen if I made a shoe in our manufacturing facility, right? So I was really curious to see what would happen. You know, 
what that difference would be. So um, we made the shoe, you know, just had to go down the line like a normal shoe would and put up my foot and the fit was there. But the bespoke shoe, having sat in the last for, you know, weeks like they did back in the old days and having it wet lasted and the insole wet form to the last, you can definitely tell that difference when you put it on. Wait, are you getting lobs for $1,300 somehow? Is that what I just heard? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, like I said, there's no end to the price limit. I mean, they can go tens of thousands of dollars, but. Man, you got all the tricks. We talked about this a couple weeks back. Big thing that we always try and do on the show, on the site, whatever, is just, there's a lot of information out there about shoes, about boots, that isn't always necessarily 100% the case. And stories get told and people run with them and they get parroted and whatever. Yeah, there's definitely some about Red Wing. It's a brand that people talk about, maybe not always accurately. It seems like a good opportunity to say, yeah, you know, here are some things that, that people might have misconceptions about Red Wing from your perspective that isn't necessarily the case. You know, it's really interesting working for a heritage brand because we're handcuffed in a lot of ways, right? In one way, we're so honest and transparent because the brand speaks for itself. The history is all there. We're kind of guardians of this brand. We don't, we're, we're very careful about what, where we go with our product and what we do and what we say. And we want to be very authentic. Our shoe lasts, you know, for example, um, those shoe lasts have been around for ages. Aki and I talk about this quite a bit. You know, we were just talking this week about, so when did the 23 lasts first get invented and who invented it and why and for what reason? And these are, um, it's vintage tooling, you know, that's the shoe industry in the U.S. has undergone a lot of change. And it was interesting to be a part of that change too, to go to see, you know, us go from manual cutting dyes to more auto cutting. There used to be a lot of shoe last companies in the U.S., especially around the St. Louis area. And one by one, they got bought out by each other until it was just J&V. Jones and Vining was the last shoe last maker in the U.S. And now a few years ago, they stopped making last in the U.S. And there's no last maker left. And the same thing happened in the leather industry. There was tons of tanneries around. And one by one, they kind of gradually got bought out. So um, our last do fit large. And that was the other thing I was talking to Aki about. I was like, why do our last fit large? You know, all these little things that new to the footwear industry and trying to figure out how this all comes together. And it's, it's really interesting to just kind of track the history and see what was happening. And, um, you know, it was probably one last company got bought out by another one. And when they copied the, the master model, they got the size wrong. And, you know, just kind of like a copy of a copy of a copy and things kind of slowly drifted. But now it's become a part of us and we're known for that. And, you know, you can't, it's tempting to, to say, okay, all right, we know that our 23 last fits large. So as of this date and time, we're going to readjust the sizing and go, you know, be more true to size from here on out. Well, you can't really do that with a legacy brand. It's been established. And so you got to stay the course. So none of the 23, eight, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what last, some of the others, I feel like the Chuck is on something totally different. It's the same thing, is what you're saying. Obviously, like the the physical lasts are probably not as wooden as they used to be, and and things along those lines. But those are the same shapes from 1954 and 1920 or 30, whatever. Yeah, it'd be a great project for a PhD student, right, to study the history of of shoemaking in the U.S. But yeah, you know, I was talking to Aki. It's you know, I think the A-Last evolved from the Munson Last. It was like the Red Wing shoe version of the Munson Last. That tracks, yeah. Like the Iron Ranger Last is eight, probably most famously used on, yeah. 
So it's kind of neat, you know, all the shoe factories in the, in the U.S. were making boots for the for the military in the world wars. And, you know, all the soldiers would get together and say, hey, who's who made your boot? And, and you know, they got to know which boot makers were better than others. And when they got home after the war, they bought their boots from that brand, for example, you know. And so it was kind of a, a, a cool way to, to establish a shoe factory. So the 8 last, I think, was a version of the months and last, a little more tapered down, slimmed out, um, you know, and so that's kind of how I think that last kind of got started here. 23 last, you know, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, mass manufacturing and it's how, how hard it is to engineer a process. Aki called out the fact that the mock toe, Red Wing Shoe was the first manufacturer to do a machine stitched mock. I didn't really know this, but, you know, like Russell Moxon, that's the traditional way of making a mock. It wraps up around and you hand stitch that those two pieces together but Red Wing I think in the 30s or so pioneered a technique using a machine to do the first machine stitched mock so that was an example of some engineer you know at some point in time sat down and said hey how can I take this shoe and and make it so it's in a mass-produced way and so that's a cool innovation of Red Wing Shoe Company and there's a lot of little stories like that you know the first um, direct attached welt shoe was done by Red Wing the Super Soul machine built by people here it's still sitting out in the factory and it's just really cool to see that machine still sitting there that people literally created from scratch and pioneered a technology those Super Souls are cool I had a pair from I don't know 70s or 80s like a little mock toe shoe on a last that I don't think it was uh, none of the Red Wing Mock Toe fit me terribly well, unfortunately, but like those didn't, so I don't have them anymore. Man, they were just a funky, really cool shoe. Somebody who really appreciates them has them now and like sends me pictures periodically. Okay, so the lasts, again, you're, you're a trustworthy guy. You're saying the lasts are all the same. We're going to believe you. The, you know, 875 Mock Toe, we're saying it's 19, 1950 what? 52 was the first time that style number was used, 875. Okay, and that, that sucker's been around. You know, we're, we're believing that. The one that I'm always wondering about is the Iron Ranger. Like, you can't you can't go on eBay or, or Google Images and be like, vintage Iron Ranger. Like, it's just going to be an old boot that was made in 2010 that somebody wore really well. You're like, oh, cool, okay. What is the deal with that? And, you know, what kind of Aki find and... How similar was that boot to the story that's told of, you know, the kind of mining usage that at least the name is based on and maybe actually the boot too? That boot has an interesting story based and inspired by boots from our archive. There was plenty of boots in there that has that toe shape, that vamp stitch, the garrison stitch on the back, um, but in different heights. And we had a lot of really tall nine-inch boots, some eight-inch boots, um, variations in between. This was a pattern that we said, you know what, let's put it in this height, this shape. Um, and so that sort of became became the Iron Ranger. But all the details, you know, like the double toe, um, the original safety boot, if you want to call it that, that's all authentic, original. Aki has this deck where he got all of his inspiration from, you know, all the, the notes about where he got the stitch detail from. Yeah, the other cool thing about the Iron Ranger was that it had the flat nitrile cork sole. So if you look at the earlier... Iron Rangers that had the flat rubber sole. That was, you know, originally the first uh, rubber sole that the company used before rubber became a thing. Everything was leather outsoles. And then um, this flat rubber sole was like the rubber version of a 
flat leather sole. Obviously, you know, that works well when you live in Japan and the, you have no snow. And then, you know, years later, we, we did the change to go to the Vibram 430 Mini Lug to improve traction for a lot of our consumers in the, in the Midwest and in North America that needed that slip resistance. We have old catalogs that has pictures of miners digging and stuff. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool to, to see that shoe come to life. Oh, man, I love it. And wait, what did you call it? The garrison stitch? Is that like the rounded backstay stitch? Yeah, it's the it's like the outside counter pocket. It's kind of one of those things where like every shoe company has its own name for certain parts. But you know, it's the outside counter pocket that kind of is one single piece backstay counter pocket combined. So garrison. Good work, garrison. Yeah. <laughs> Make a hell of a stitch. I mean, it actually, I mean, it seems like a tricky stitch to do consistently, you know. It's not straight. That's done by the trusty old Puritan stitch machine, <laughs> and there's uh, no way to automate that stitch. It's all hand eye, and that's a that's a beefy sh- machine to run. It's like you step on the gas pedal and it takes off. <laughs> you got to really know what you're doing in the shoemaking process. By the time you're stitching that boot on, you you have a lot of labor put into there. So if you screw up on that one, you're you're strapping an upper. <laughs> you mentioned you guys dug out some. Uh machines i guess from uh, that been in storage or whatever what was the what was like the coolest machine that you dug out and got back in service oh uh, let's see man there's been a lot of um we found an old crimping machine before we had our, our red ring label everything was stamped foil stamped like the style number shoe size we found a couple of those machines that we brought back for some styles we did for japan we have a, a building that has a called the machine graveyard. You know, we always like to keep a machine or two on hand for spare parts. That's the challenge these days is getting parts. So it's you have one machine that's sitting there for scrap that you take parts from, and you guys got to keep the machine in constant, make sure it's running all the time. So what's the oldest machine that you guys still use today? Um, it's probably our heel nailer. It's this huge machine. It's probably eight nine feet tall weighs a ton all solid metal <laughs> but i think it's been here since almost day one maybe we do an outside nailed technique of nailing on our heel so it um just uh this is machine that has nail patterns that just drive the nails through the bottom of the heel up into the last or it clenches over itself on the, the heel plate of the last that machine is a relic <laughs> you know there's no no controls in that machine. There's no buttons you push. Everything is turned by knobs. And the person that runs the machine, they listen to it. It's like, oh, it's hitting a little off. So they just make a little adjustment. Oh, man. It's just, just by feel. But why? Why is it? Is there a benefit to it? Like, I imagine that the capital exists to, to nail heels with a slightly different, only seven and a half foot tall machine. <laughs> yeah, there's there's machines out there. You know, the other way to nail on a, on a heel is inside nailing, where you take the last out and you drive the nails from the inside of the boot. You know, we've just always done outside nailing. It's the nail is going through the heel and clenching over on itself. Traditional way of nailing on a heel is kind of replicating the hand nailing of a, a heel onto a boot. Yeah, it's just a machine that was built really, really well, and it keeps on running. So wish my dishwasher and vacuum cleaner did the same. <laughs> That's so cool, man. Yeah, I'm like looking at uh, the heel on a pair of merchants that I have here, and it's like, it's pretty sick. Just think every pair for over 100 years got nailed by the same machine, including, you know, my pair. That's cool, man. So what's next? In the last three years, everything went crazy everywhere. You were asked to say, let's do this as smartly as possible. Kind of really call the line for a bit. The world changed 
in those three years and it's going to change again and the next part's a little tricky to predict what do you see coming in the next let's first do you know year or two for red wing heritage well it's hard to know where we're at like i said we're two years out so we're kicking off fall 25 sometimes i wake up and it's like what year am i living in now <laughs> so <laughs> my wife has reminded me oh it's honey it's only 2023 it's like oh, okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> But you actually do know, you know, I mean, you do have a two-year outlook on on what's going to happen that's, like, somewhat firm, right? It's a roadmap for sure. And, and, you know, sometimes you have to take a detour and sometimes you have to take a pause and hang out here for a little while longer. But um, we're doubling down on our icon, the 875 Mach Toe style. You know, just before the, the shutdowns, we launched this Chelsea boot. You know, we've done lots of different Chelsea boots over the years, uh, traction tread Chelsea, a nail seat Chelsea, stitch down Chelsea. But just before the pandemic, we had this collection of Chelsea's that we um, introduced that had um, a little deviation on the inside of the shoe to make the boots a little more step-in friendly. Um, so we, you know, normally we have a, a leather bend insole. This one we did the Texan Poron insole with a leather cover, uh, a little bit more comfort underneath the foot, ease the break-in period. We got a lot of great feedback on that. Obviously, some of the diehard fans are like, oh, no, you're going away to from Veg 10. It's like, nope, we're just doing it on this collection of shoes. Uh, we want to listen to the consumer. Uh, slippery slope, slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, we thought a lot and hard about how we do this and do we do this. And obviously, at 875, our core styles are not changing. We'll never change them. <laughs> you have my word. But, you know, there are consumers who have are asking for a shoe that is that step in comfort. Obviously, we have the stitch down collection, not good you welted. It's step in easy. It has a footbed. We wanted a shoe that somebody could then go into the good you welted family of footwear. So this is like the, you know, another step in the process, if you will, to go from stitch down to welt. So this boot, you know, everything about it is 100% the same as how we always made our footwear. We just did a material swap. I, I love it. I wear it on my my hobby farm, <laughs> raising the sheep. So it's a, it's a great boot to slip on and off and, and go out in the elements. So we want to bring that style back and add a colorway to it. So you'll see that coming out. We want to bring back some of the other styles that we've been paused on and we want to make sure we bring them back with the highest quality possible. So bringing back a shoe is not like jumping on a bike and it's, there's a learning curve involved. <laughs> so you got to retrain operators, reset expectations, and make sure it gets brought back into the line the right way. This is maybe a little tougher. What does 10 years from now look like? What kind of challenges do you think lie between here and there? USA manufacturing will be really interesting to, to see how that evolves for, for everything. You know, finding a workforce that um, is stable is, is a challenge any part of the country you work for, you know, all of our suppliers have factories in the U.S., you know, or welt supplier, outsole supplier, you name it. And they, they're facing the same challenges. And so it's like, how do we keep this alive and thriving? And so um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to be pioneers in this new era of craft manufacturing. It all comes down to, it's the human element of manufacturing. It's the person behind the machine that makes the difference. Yeah, that, that workforce element will be critical in the next 10 years how do we do that yeah it's getting people passionate about making shoes uh working with their hands tomorrow morning actually we have this mentorship program with the high school students so a couple times a year we have some students come in and and just kind of job shadow us so tomorrow morning i'm doing that again with, with a couple of kids and 
you know, you just hope that it inspires them and want to get into the trades. So do it. I mean, yeah, I don't know that there's a perfect answer for that, right? It used to be you live somewhere and there's, there's a factory in town that everybody just calls the shoe and uh, a whole bunch of people probably end up working there. And Yeah, it was a source of pride. I mean, there was a waiting list for people that you were really fortunate to get a job. You know, now it's kind of the, the opposite way. And a lot of people, you know, view automation as the future and um, robots, you know, robots always show up in time, never complain, they're never sick, you know, but um, but they're susceptible to cyber attacks. <laughs> but uh <laughs> That's the challenge. I mean, you know, I'm not opposed to um, machine-assisted operations. An operator making a boot is not an easy task, and especially if you're working an eight-hour shift, nine-hour shift. You know, by by the ninth hour, you're you're worn out. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other jobs out there that a person who's looking for work can go into. You know, working at the gas station. It's not as labor-intensive as making a pair of boots, but I think it, luckily the Red Wing is known in the community as being a, a solid brand and there's been people that their mom and dad grandfather grandmother has worked at the company and loved the company and so we're very fortunate that we have that uh, reputation i mean i'm sure it goes a long way and and hopefully far enough you know i think that maybe it's too easy of an answer or too simplistic or maybe it is something that's not thought about enough but you know just creating like a great place to work that you want to go to every day. I mean, the value of that, aside from the actual work that you're doing, you know, the people, the culture, all that, I don't know. My, my hope is that there's power in that, you know, for American manufacturing. It seems pretty essential, right? Like, you're not going to be able to compete with certain industries on pay. You're not going to be able to compete with certain industries, a lot of industries possibly on, like, yeah, this is kind of like an easy job that isn't physically taxing. <laughs> yeah, it's just how do you... Yeah, get people excited about what you're doing and and who you're doing it with and, and how you're doing it. It's not easy to do that, but it does seem essential at this point more than ever. We're very proud of the fact that Heritage is made in USA. We want to make sure it stays that way. I think you got it. I think you got it all figured out. All right, let's end this on <laughs> either a fun or really, really incredibly difficult question. They're not like children, these boots that you develop. You got to have a favorite. We got to know it, Mike. What is it? And get specific with it. Oh, man. That one that just it sings to you that you got it back from the wear testers and you're like, I'm just, I'm keeping all of these. We lost them. We're sorry. We'll send you the stipend. Yeah. You know, the, the beauty of living in Minnesota and having four distinct seasons really makes it so that you have, you have to wear a shoe for every different season, right? So I waffle back and forth between wearing eight inch you know, lace-up boots to just being lazy and pulling on a Chelsea with no lacing required. <laughs> it's just, uh, like I said, I we have a hobby farm, sheep farm. So in the summertime, you know, I'm constantly going in and out of the house. And so the Chelsea boot is awesome for that. In the wintertime, with a slower pace, you know, snow on the ground, I find myself wearing this eight-inch Norwegian welted uh, boot. <laughs> But, you know, I'm more partial to to nail seats, like a traction tread. You know, occasionally I wear the mock toe, but it's rare that you'd find me wearing a mock toe. The merchant boot actually is one that I wear quite a bit. Like I said, it's the toughest decision every day is what am I going to wear today? <laughs> I really like leather outsoles, too. They're great. They're so comfortable. Uh-huh. But what, what do you rock it? Do you have, like, red wings with leather soles on them? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to get a Iron Ranger made with a leather sole. 
I don't know. I just feel like you're more connected to the ground when you were a leather soul, you know? Leather and some metal eyelets, you know? The shank, right? That's the way to do it. Worked for a very long time. Infernal rubber came into play. Rubber school, too. Look, thank you to Grant Stone for sponsoring this episode. Follow him on Instagram. Head over to grantstoneshoes.com. Sign up for their newsletter. All of it. Uh, support the Shoecast by joining the Stitchdown Discord. Dare you. Massive thanks, Mike Larson, Red Wing Heritage, for coming on the Shoecast. This has been great, man. Thank you so much for just digging in on, on all of it. All right, that's it for this week. Take care of your shoes. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.